0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Power of Public Speaking podcast. Our title today is When Are You? And our Greek concept is called Kairos. My name is John Radwin, and I'm joined today with our co-host, Angela Karyotis. Angela, can you please introduce yourself to everybody?
1: Hi, I'm glad to be here with all of you listening, and I'm glad to be here with my friends and colleague. I'm Angela Cariotis. I'm the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Brookdale Community College, uh, serving all of Monmouth County in New Jersey.
0: And my name is John Radwin, and I direct the Institute for Communication and Religion at Seton Hall University. And I'm honored to have taught communication here in the beautiful state of New Jersey for coming up on 20 years now. I want to start us off today with an interesting question uh, from Dr. Martin Luther King. Which age would you like to live in? Please take 30 seconds and think through your knowledge of history. At what historical era would you like to live? 30 seconds, jot it down on a piece of paper, starting now. that's about 30 seconds we'll hear dr king's answer to this question in just a little bit for me i study rhetoric persuasion and influence and just so much foundational work on the power of public speaking was developed by great philosophers like plato and aristotle in ancient greece over 2500 years ago so sometimes i think i might have liked to live back then if i had attended one of gorgias's courses i might have learned the concept of kairos kairos is the Greek idea that the right word at the right time is supremely powerful. So what the Greeks do is they point toward lived process and how we use our freedom to grow our communities or in some cases to enable them to decay. So when I look at history from this perspective, I start to see the whole world as a process of social movements where ideas flow in streams across continents and across historical periods. Each public moment, like like even this moment, is an inflection point where a rhetor, a persuasive speaker, can step up and take an opportunity to help direct the community toward greater growth and health. For Aristotle, he talked about rhetoric, public discourse, as a critical faculty, where we look at what's going on in any given case, we pay attention and determine the right words for that particular case and time. I like to approach this in terms of three when are you questions. The first question is a question about your descriptive awareness. Do you know what's going on? What events, movements, and trends are active in your culture? Next is a moral discernment question. When should you step up? When should you contribute energy to influencing community flow? And then the last question is a rhetorical investment question and a performance question. What are you going to say? and how are you gonna say it? So let's come back to Dr. King now and hear his answer to the big question, which age would you like to live in? This comes from his mountaintop address on April 3rd, 1968. And it's the source of a very famous quote from MLK, only when it is dark enough, can you see the stars? We'll listen to just a little bit of his introduction to explore the Kylos theme in MLK.
2: It's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Aberneth is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning you reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow something is happening in Memphis something is happening in our world and you know if I was standing At the beginning of time, with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat, and I would watch Martin Luther as he taxed his ninety-five theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg. But I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to eighteen sixty-three, and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the emancipation proclamation but I wouldn't stop there (laughs) I would even come up to the early thirties and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that We have nothing to fear but fear itself, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the twentieth century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up, the nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled to today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace. But now, no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, If something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period, to see what is unfolding, and I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis.
0: Okay, so I'm going to stop Dr. King right there. I hope you noticed the theme of now. Dr. King doesn't want to live, like I do, in ancient Greece. Dr. King doesn't want to live in ancient Rome. Dr. King doesn't want to live in the Renaissance. Dr. King doesn't even want to witness Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. Instead, Dr. King is happy, happy to live in the mid 20th century as part of the civil rights movement, one of the darkest, most difficult times in American history. And many people would say that we're facing similar challenges right now. And so, as we transition toward contemporary leaders, Uh, Angela, can you please share your answer with us? Which age would you like to live in?
1: Sure. Uh, I would like to live in the future. So I honor uh, Afrofuturist thought here, and I honor the Black tradition of radical imagination, And also abolitionist movements, too, about the breaking down for the building up. We do not yet live in the world that we want to live in, but the actions that we take now, the deconstructing and reconstructing, might well create the kind of world that uh, we all actually want to live in and the kind that will be sustainable for all of us. So speaking of modern-day leaders and uh, ones that are organic Organic in their time and space. Um, I just want to mention and, and, and allude to uh, some of the ideas that you presented before the idea of uh, when are you? You know, we are in the midst of two pandemics right now. That's when we are. And learning that structural racism is a pre existing condition. And the discernment that is required is to know and to feel that there is a terrible wrongness here, especially those who are privileged enough to only now be awakening to the current moment, to say and to really be able to acknowledge the terrible wrongness. And uh, what will you say? So there are especially white people that are new to their solidarity, that are new into what's happening. and, and just the different new to sort of discovering what, especially what Black folk have been talking about for centuries. And a lot of white folk are asking, What do I say? You know, what will I do? And the reality is that uh, no one can answer that for us, but it does take a tremendous amount of courage uh, to find our way uh, within the current conversation to have the kind of imagination that is required to build the kind of world in the future that will sustain all of us. So we're gonna hear from um, three leaders. And, and leaders, some are chosen leaders and some are stepping up to the podium and speaking up and speaking out because no one else will. You know, who if you don't say it, no one else will. So we're gonna hear from Tamika Mallory. And this speech right now was is literally described as speech for a generation. So, John, can you play a little bit of this for us?
0: Happy to.
3: where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. Do what you say this country is supposed to be about the land of the free for all. It has not been free for black people, and we are tired. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the
1: Native Americans when they first came here. A speech for a generation. So this is, and we'll talk more about uh, what makes this so, but this is a call out. And Tamika Mallory, uh, an activist, she actually is doing tremendous work in East Orange, New Jersey, right? Has been, is doing some work with Seton Hall students, right? Uh, This is a call out. And not calling out individuals, but calling out entire systems, calling out the entire history uh, of the United States. Uh, so now we're gonna hear from uh, another natural leader, Kimberly Jones. So if we could play this.
3: I believe you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them. And then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now, at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of monopoly with you and I had to play and get every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, Every time that I played, i if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win?
1: How can you win? We can't is how she ends that. Um, so Kimberly Jones, what she does here is lay out the metaphor of a Monopoly game so people can really grasp the idea. And, and this is a call up. And we'll talk more about what that looks like and what that sounds like later. Uh, Really being logical, like naming instances in history that a lot of people don't know about. They just don't teach about this. Uh, everybody now is starting to talk about the Tulsa race massacre, the Tulsa race riot, and even that language. What does that sound like? That sounds like people from different races that are fighting each other. That means everybody has a chance, and that's not what happens, right? Uh, a lot of people are, are entering what happens in Tulsa through the Watchmen show uh, right? Uh, on uh, on on HBO. Uh, for a lot of us, that was the first time that we even heard about what happened in Tulsa. So this is this is a call, up, laying out in a logical way through history just the tremendous amount of, of uh, ev- everything that led us to this moment. So now we're gonna hear from one more person and this is Jacob Blake's sister. Uh, Jacob Blake was shot in the back by a police officer. Uh, so we're gonna hear from her right now uh, at, a, at a press conference. Can you play this?
4: And when you say the name Jacob Blake, make sure you say father, make sure you say cousin, Make sure you say son, make sure you say uncle, but most importantly, make sure you say human. Human life. Let it marinate in your mouth, in your minds. A human life. Just like every single one of y'all, and everywhere around the world, we're human. And His life matters. So many people have reached out to me, telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time. Longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Mm. Philando, Mike Brown, Mm. Sandra. This has been happening to my family. And I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to.
1: Thank you for that. I'm going to take a deep breath after all that. And I invite all of you listening to take a deep breath with me, too. So, you know, we heard from these three speeches and um, two of them were at press conferences and and one of them was in front of in front of a film crew. But I, I have to say the point here, you know, and I'm here as a public speaking person where if we could look at public speaking and contextualize it as speaking up and speaking out, public speaking, to speak up and speak out and say the thing when when no one else will, the three speeches that you heard when we think about speech, we think of it as something that is scripted and something that's researched and something that's called and something that's practiced, prepared, rehearsed, you know your audience. You're real diligent about the rhetorical devices that you put into it. And none of that preparation were what was in these speeches and yet it, and yet these speeches were tremendously prepared. Yet they've been bubbling up for their entire lives. And yet if if they didn't come up to the mic, whether, whether it's a real mic or a proverbial mic, if they don't say it, no one else will. If these three leaders didn't make the choice, the courageousness to put themselves on the line, putting yourself on the line to say the thing, uh, no one else will say it. So Mike can yes. All right, so calling out Uh, calling out is hard. (laughs) My friends here, we might we might think about it in in two different ways. Uh, John, you want to tell me what you think about calling out or how you contextualize it?
0: Yeah, fantastic. The the Mallory speech we just watched is a a powerful example of calling out, and so the judgment theme there is, is unavoidable. Uh, The judgment should never be without a rationale. It should never be without a reason. Because when, you know, we're all human, so sometimes we do judge without reasons. Uh, But when that's public, uh, that's at least an online discourse, it's called venting. And it might feel good. It might get something off your chest. But it's very rarely productive and leadership oriented. And sometimes it can start a a chain of venting (laughs) where lots of people get inspired to complain rather than lead so uh i would encourage people to call things out when it's something that is uh again if we go back to our initial thing that your moral discernment and descriptive awareness have told you something needs to be done something needs to be said and so yes call it out just be sure that we provide a rationale along with it and uh we're Firm and leadership-oriented, rather than personally-oriented. Just about getting something out of our hearts. Mm-hmm. Angela, what what were you going to say about calling out?
1: Yeah, you, you know, I, I needed that uh, Tamika Mallory call out. And, and the thing about a call out is very different. I want to differentiate it from cancel culture. You know, I, I can I definitely uh, understand how people are adverse to cancel culture. It seems totally random. It's you know, it's public because of social media. There's no room for repair or apology. Um, so I just want to differentiate it from that. Can uh, calling out might be the choice that you have to make when you have to stop an immediate impending harm. when it is any emer- it is a break the glass choice. It is like uh, an immediate intervention. and it might be a calling out might be the choice that you have to make. It's like putting the hammer down, and it might be something that it it might be very public, and it might be calling out. Might be a choice that you have to make when you are intervening uh, with a stranger, right? There's no room. There's not going to be any room when you're dealing with a stranger or when you're in a public space for our two other options, which we're we're going to go into now.
0: Right. So the second option is calling in, and I think we saw a great example of that in the Jones speech. Calling in is, uh, in one of her examples, uh, building up uh, a coalition for economic withdrawal. And that's one of Dr. King's themes too. The boycott is a powerful way to advance social change. So a speech to call in, the objective is a little bit less judgment oriented and much more community oriented, where we try to gather like-minded people together and inspire them to work together to build circles of influence. And really one of the most important things to remember about social change is that it really only happens at the movement level. It only happens in the context of relationships that are motivated. So if you're not working toward building relationships, the odds of heading production of change in your direction are really very slim. So we need to think carefully about how we word our rhetoric. And so the example we have here is, uh, first off, establishing solidarity with someone, right? So I used to think that same way. And then next, establishing a level of emotional connection with that person. Uh, I know you care about people. I know you also care about people. And then lastly, an invitation. Uh, Please come listen to why I believe differently now. That type of process can start coalition building an important source for social change.
1: Yeah, and your coalition building might have to start within your home. And it might have to start with who's sitting at your dinner table during the holidays. And calling in is the kind of slow patience, the, 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 the holding, the radical compassion. And um, talking, bringing people that you love, you know, you're call when you're calling somebody in, these are people that you already have a relationship with your own family members. And you're bringing them, you're inviting them to think about things in a really different way. So, you know, we talk about going to the protest and we're talking about donating the money and volunteering. And what are we going to, you know, where are we going to go and what are we going to do outside, outside, outside and wanting to see big shift change? And all of that is important. But a lot of people are struggling with the question of what do I do? What do I say? You can start with the people that are nearest to you and calling them in is a way to start that.
0: Thanks, Angela. Our last one is my favorite. Calling up is what I see in Dr. King's rhetoric. Uh, You may recall the clip I played at the beginning was from the mountaintop address, and we'll also hear the conclusion at, at the end of our presentation today. Dr. King points toward ideals. He points toward the top of the mountain, or in the passage I played for you already, he points up to the stars, and so things may often be dark in society, but the stars are eternal. Justice, light, and love are above. And as we reach for them, we don't just pull ourselves up, we improve all of society. So especially in an American context, we have a lot of stars, we have wonderful ideals. Life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have been something all Americans are reaching for, for generations. And so rhetoric that tries to inspire us to reach asks us to work together toward moving up the mountain and closer to the stars.
1: Calling up is about reaching, uh, calling up your circles of influence too right so what are our circles of influence we just talked about one right you the people that you live with in your home but for my circle of influence might be my colleagues my department uh, my circle of influence where i worship the pta that i'm a part of uh, of the parent group that that i see um where I volunteer, um, if I'm part of any leagues, any conference, any committees, if I'm on a board of directors, there are, that is a tremendous list. <laughs> that That's a lot of circles. And I'm just one person. So a lot of us, if we take the time and to really write down what are our circles of influence and we don't have to you know we we don't have to have all the we don't have to come to them with the memo with the with the map with the to-do list but we can simply ask uh what can we do and what can we do together so you invite people you let people know you signal to them that you care about these issues that you are in solidarity and working together to come to a solution and going on that journey together. So on that, I'm going to take a deep breath here. Um, all, calling up, calling in, calling out. Those are decisions that we're making in real time. But all of those things are responses. We are intervening. We are interrupting. We're making the decision uh, to interrupt a moment. And then we're deciding, are we calling in, calling up, or calling out? But I just want to pause on the moment before. I'm going to read a, a quotation. And this is by Claudia Rankin and, and her book Citizen. It says, you take in things you don't want all the time. The second you hear or you see some ordinary moment, all its intended targets all the meanings behind the repeating sounds as far as you are able to see come into focus. Hold up. Did you just hear? Did you just say? Did you just see? Did you just do that? Then the voice in your head silently tells you to take your foot off your throat because just getting along shouldn't be an ambition. So I want to uh, ask, um, I want to ask my friend John, um, what are have you ever had a moment where you did not intervene? But I also want to ask everybody at home. I'm going to do what you did with a with a little assignment. If everybody could take your your pen and paper out and write down two instances, uh, moments of prejudice against someone. When did you mo- when did you witness a moment of prejudice against someone? because of some part of their identity and you did not intervene. So I'm going to, while everybody else is thinking about it and I'm, you know, I'm, we're going to be pretty good about guessing what some of those might be and why we don't have to talk about what those instances are, but John, like, why do you think, like, why didn't you interrupt? We all have an answer. I just want to make it clear. Everybody there are, most of us have not interrupted harmful moments, which is what brought us to this one, right? This is what brought us to where, this is why Tamika Mallory had to give the speech that she did or Kimberly Jones or why Jacob Blake's sister had to go out there like that or why Martin Luther King uh, has to exist in the moment that he did, right? Because of the people who did not intervene or interrupt while they were witnessing a prejudice inflicted on someone. So why do you think we don't intervene? Or what stopped us?
0: (laughs) Right, Um, I think often we're scared. And so thank you for uh, asking me to share my experiences. (laughs) I I will share one of them. And Mm -hmm. I can talk about it comfortably because it was a long time ago. So I'm 50 years old now, and I have uh, certainly regrets like everybody, but I also have some triumphs. Uh, When I was much younger, Uh, late teens, early 20s, I was going to college, perhaps like many people in the audience for this podcast. And I vividly remember the first time I heard an anti-Semitic joke. And part of the reason why I vividly remember it was, uh, first off, it it was the first time. So uh, where I had grown up in southeastern Massachusetts, there might have been other problems with prejudice, but for some reason, Jews were never a target. But when I went to a a larger place, when I went off to university, uh, all of a sudden I was confronted with someone who thought that, uh, you know, physical features were fair game for laughter. And one of the reasons why I remember it is I did not call out. I did not call in. And I, I did not call up. I froze. I didn't know what to do. I knew it was wrong. I had moral discernment. And I'm aware of history. I know how anti-Semitism has been a, a epic level crime across the centuries, but I did not have any techniques. And then uh, another reason why I remember it is because I was proud of my friend. So my friend Shannon stepped up. My friend Shannon called out. So I forget exactly who the Joker is, but I remember my friend, Shannon, stood up for justice. So Shannon Hogan, if you're listening, I still remember you 30 years later for standing up to anti-Semitism against our other friend, Jake, who wasn't in the room right then. And so thankfully, I've had 30 years to work on this type of stuff. And I do think that I'm a little bit better at my rhetorical skills of, again, being aware of what's going on, being able to discern the moral values that are in play and then make strategic choices about how to call out in or up. Um, How's that example, Angela? Thank
1: thank you uh, for putting yourself on the line and and sharing all of that with us. And what I'm hearing a lot too is, you know, there's a lot of practice here, right? So this is the power, you know, public speaking you know there is there is something uh, about rehearsing for the future so i just invite everybody to sort of um take that phrase in practicing for the future, rehearsing for the future. And I think about something like impromptu, which is what I practiced when I was doing forensics. There's a, a, a public speaking shout out, and we practice with drills. And improvisation too, Is it's a theater technique, but improvisation is a life skill and it's about building your stamina, your capacity and your muscle memory. Uh, to be able to intervene in real time. You won't intervene in real time unless you practice for it, unless you are able to to regulate your somatic impulses away from that uh, freeze or flight response to sort of make the the choice to intervene and interrupt the moment. So here we have it. You want to lead us through the top of this?
0: Yeah, fantastic. So when you're in the moment, you're, you're really not thinking these things through. You have to practice and you have to get some techniques down. So here are the techniques on in engaging a, a chirotic moment on an inflection point in the history right in front of you. First off, be in touch with your body, feel the heat. And uh, Angela composed this sub point here. I really like it. Pinged is a great verb to use. I would say too often our culture goes straight to trigger and it's not that triggers don't exist they do but so many things happen that aren't necessarily a trigger where there's no turning back instead it's something where we're 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 bugged we're poked we're pinged and we want to notice how it feels when that happens and Becoming sensitive to that somatic embodied level of feeling is really your first step in being grounded in community because you're grounded in yourself. You know your feelings and your body.
1: Take a beat. So this is a pause, all right? So you are taking a beat, you're breathing, you're noticing your feelings, and you're also naming them. And part of noticing your feelings or Naming your feelings will allow you to create some creative distance that'll keep you in control instead of moving up and out of control. A lot of times we'll freeze because we're out of control and just breathing and noticing your feelings, creating that distance so you could assert your control. And that's what makes us feel comfortable, right? Being in control in any situation, but you can't just... This doesn't miraculously miraculously appear. You know, it would be great if we have a breathing practice, even just I know, you know, meditation is hard. I wish I was somebody who did it every day and who was totally great and committed to it. But even just a, a few seconds throughout the day to remind yourself to breathe or to take a deep breath, just like I did during this, this podcast, our time together, I needed to take the time to remember to breathe just to get myself into the present moment and um, reminding ourselves to breathe, noticing our breath can help us with that take a, breathe, take a beat moment.
0: As we're breathing, it's not just a physical process, it's also a mental process. And so the mental pause is consideration of what just happened, and then especially that knowledge-level effort to connect it to patterns and trends within the culture. So it's a little bit of an overstatement, but we really don't live in radically new times. There are repetitive patterns. And if we understand those patterns and get used to, especially social patterns of, domination and repression, as opposed to patterns of liberation, if we can notice that dynamic, we can start to be able to situate ourselves within our culture's history. Once we've done all that work, which really can go by in 15 seconds, right? It's work. It needs to be done. But 15 seconds of, wow, I'm feeling pinged. I need to take a breath and center myself and my body. I need to figure out how this connects to history. Once you've done those three steps, now you're ready to make a call. You're ready to call out, call in, or call up. And then the best calls are the calls that enable relationships to develop. Because as we've already said today, social change only happens in relation a single person is really not going to be able to change uh, the culture. You may be able to change a a local culture, like an individual relationship or some influence on family. But even that, even at the family level, as Angela was saying before, you still wanna be calling in family members and doing coalition building. And that is uh, certainly uh, at a larger scale for our cultures level.
1: All of this requires practice (laughs) and patience and uh, radical self-compassion too, but uh, making the choice to call up, call out, or call in uh, is a choice that'll make a difference. So I want to remind everybody, you know, if you did it, or if you thought about it when I asked you, write down two moments where you witnessed a prejudice against someone because of their identity and you did not intervene. So I want you to think about those moments. And just for yourself, what would you do? What would you choose? Looking back now, would you choose to call up, call out, or call in? So like all of us, learning from our past to build a radical future and the one that we want to building the world that we really wanna live in through the the, the power of the spoken word, the power of public speaking.
0: Thanks, Angela. This transitions us into our conclusion. So everybody please remember, kairos is the ancient Greek word for getting us to pay attention to timing and rhetorical technique. How can we get the right words at the right time to bring society forward? Now to summarize our main points, the first one is that timing points. Humans live in time. Time is ticking right now. And as moments unfold, leadership is really not an option. It's a requirement. Someone has to help direct our culture. And the best leaders are the ones that are aware of historical and cultural patterns, the ones that discern moral and ethical imperatives built into those situations, and the leaders that create rhetorical responses that help the community grow.
1: Remember this technique, write it down somewhere and on a post-it, put it in your pocket. It's It's got a little bit of a rhyme, so it'll help inspire you, right? Uh, feel the heat, take a beat, pause, choose. Calling in, calling up, calling out. The most important step is to choose, to interrupt and to intervene.
0: And then our third main point stressed relationality. Humans are social beings. We require one another. There really is no human or humane life without each other. So we're calling each other all the time and we're responding to one another all the time. So the question we titled our presentation, when are you? It's when are you in the big picture of like, when do you live in our world's development, like historical periods, But it's also, when are you going to fall in line with the leaders? When are you going to become a leader? So Dr. King's a leader, Mallory Jones and Widman were contemporary leaders we studied today. Are you a leader for tomorrow? That blank could be there for you. So to wrap up our conclusion today, we're going to take a look at MLK's conclusion from the Mountaintop Address. A quote from that ending is that he is happy tonight. So it's a Kairos theme, right? It's about right then. Some of the context for Dr. King's speech, he's in Memphis to support the garbage workers strike. Being a garbage worker in 1968 in Memphis is not just low pay, it's lethal low pay. It's dangerous. And so Dr. King is there in support of the workers. It's not a great place to be. It's a difficult place to be. Police brutality is real. And Dr. King is there to face it and he's happy. Part of his happiness is the theme I introduced us at the beginning of today's podcast. When it is darkest, that's when we can see the stars. It's also happiness because he's got a direction. He's calling us up. He's calling us toward the top of the mountain, toward great American values. And uh, as a last little bit, This is the very last speech conclusion Dr. King ever delivered. He was assassinated the very next day. So April 4th, 1968 is a tragic day. For MLK, April 3rd is a happy day. He's happy to be able to conclude his speech, and I'm happy to be able to conclude our podcast with the help of Dr. King.
2: Well, I don't know what will happen now. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
0: So thank you, everybody. Uh, This has been our podcast on When Are You?, Kairos and the power of public speaking. Uh, my name is John Radwin, and on behalf of myself and uh, my partner today, Angela Kariotis, we really hope that you have learned about impromptu speech and how to face Kairotic moments with strong leadership, values, and ethics. Thank you so much.